Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to Innovation Tech Talks. I'm Corey Knowles, your host today, Managing Editor of Innovation and Tech Today magazine. And boy, do we have a cool guest today. Charlie Atkinson works for Northrop Grumman, who is an aerospace and defense technology company. You've probably heard of from a variety of things over the years. But he has been hands-on involved in the James Webb Space Telescope for 1998, did you say, Charlie? That's correct. March of 1998. Wow. So we're talking just shy of 25 years on this one project. Uh, so I guess for starters, how did you become involved in this project back then? Because for most people, this is still something they heard of six months ago, probably. And I, I'd, I'd like to see kind of how this comes together from that far out. Sure. Yeah, so um, prior to this, I worked on uh, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which was an extreme, extremely exciting program uh, and broke a number of paradigms in terms of what X-ray telescopes can, can do in terms of just the size and the resolving power and the overall collecting area um, of that telescope. Um, I'd worked as a subcontractor to what was then TRW, who was the prime contractor for putting together uh, Chandra. Um, and TRW then became Northrop um, in 2002. Um, I was responsible for putting together the um, optical assembly and then later on the telescope, um, working for um, what is now Northrop Grumman. And um, as a result of that, um, you know, spent a fair amount of time working with the people at uh, at Northrop Grumman and really understood that they like to do really challenging missions. And so when I got the opportunity to come uh, work at, at Northrop Grumman, I, I jumped at the opportunity um, and started working out on or working on a number of different programs. Uh, but it was JWST that really piqued my interest because of the amazing engineering challenges that it represented. I remember saying to uh, some of my co-workers, I really want to build that. And so I, I feel very privileged to have been able to do so. Well, I mean, decades of devotion to a single project is, is wild. So I imagine watching the launch was a pretty emotional thing. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it, it huge conflagration of, of emotions. I watched the Chandra launch um, after having worked on it for you know, a, a comparatively small amount of time. And, you know, the emotions that I felt then were, were pretty um, intense also. But with JWST, um, having spending, you know, spent two decades with it, it I draw a parallel to um, sending my two daughters off to college. You know, after spending so much time together with them, caring for them, helping them develop and grow, watching them mature, and then sending them off to school, kind of like sending JWST off to the second Lagrange point, you're filled with a, a sense of pride and joy, but also a, a little bit of, of trepidation, asking yourself, you know, did we do everything right? Is it really going to work? And then as my daughters went through the process of moving in, going through orientation, going through class registration, and actually starting to, to execute, returning back to a very deep sense of satisfaction. And there's a very strong corollary to that set of emotions with what's been happening with JWST. I'll bet there is. I'd never thought of it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. When thinking of a project that takes decades, how do you accommodate for 
changes in technology over that amount of time, because some things it's got to be difficult to foresee what could be available to you 10 years ahead of now. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting question. Um, so for JWST, we knew at the outset that there were 10 new technologies that had to be invented uh, to enable JWST. So we had we built what we called a technology roadmap, which mapped out, okay, here are these 10 new technologies. What do we need to do to bring them to, to the point where uh, they can be demonstrated and they're ready to be used for, for JWST? We also identified some enhancing technologies. So if this particular technology matures and is available, let's insert it into the program at this point. But at some point, you have to stop evolving the design and really focus on implementing it. And so while new technologies could come into fruition, you need to say, hey, can't do it um, because it would have ripple effects um, into the rest of, of, the, uh, of the design. Now, that said, we were able to take advantage of a number of emerging technologies in areas that didn't affect directly the design of the observatory. So for instance, when laser radar systems came into uh, existence and, and were uh, available to us, we used them to help with the alignment of the overall telescope and observatory. And advanced data acquisition systems um, were, were introduced that allowed us to have over 600 channels of accelerometer data during the vibration testing that were all synchronized to the point that we could actually monitor a shockwave that went through through the observatory structure. Oh, wow. We, yeah. Um, we did scrutinize um, other technologies that were coming to bear. Um, the battery is a great example of that. You know, we had a design that had a battery that um, was well known and, and um, we'd used on other missions. But in uh, as, as recent as June of 2020, the company that had built the battery that we were going to use had a new one. And it was much more capable, but had exactly the same um, size, electrical interfaces, safety systems, et cetera. So, yeah, so it was a direct replacement uh, for the one that we had. So we made the decision in June after studying it and making sure there were not going to be any other, any other ramifications of introducing it, we made the change. I know along the way, there are still a number of hurdles that need to go really well. But I assume after a successful launch and reaching LaGrange 2 and sending back its first images even just this week or that we learned about this week, is there some cautious optimism or still feeling pretty strongly that it's going to make it? You know, it, it's, uh, it's been an, an amazing um, couple of months, um, you know, going back to Christmas morning, right, <laughs> watching the launch itself and seeing the, uh, the actual uh, solar array deployed from that camera that was on the upper stage. And then watching the telemetry that tells us that uh, propulsion burns that got us going to and in orbit around the second Lagrange point. Um, those are all you know, just little milestones along the way that uh, each have uh, an incredible sense of satisfaction. You know, the whole deployment process, which lasted a full two weeks, um, getting all of the, the sun shield fully deployed, getting the telescope extended, getting uh, the mirrors um, moved out, etc. Every one of those has been, um, you know, a, a, a little, little bit of excitement along the way. 
Um, and yeah, seeing the actual images, when we saw those uh, 18 images and identified that, yep, each of those 18 is, is uh, the 18 um, segments of the, that make up the primary mirror and no, and finding them, you know, within the range that we expected them to be. Um, yeah, very satisfying. I know that JWST season infrared, uh, could you kind of, and, and if this is a little out of your wheelhouse, I totally understand. Could you explain loosely the light spectrum and what it means to see in infrared? Yeah, so it's a great question. And um, the, the best corollary I can um, draw is, so, so light travels in waves in the same way that sound does. Um, and the best corollary I can think of um, to describe the, the spectrum of light um, is the sound spectrum. So infrared um, has uh, longer wavelengths or is lower frequency um, than other light, just like the bass on your car radio. Like AM versus FM. <laughs> yeah, akin to that. <laughs> um, but just like with your car radio, to get a full idea of what the music sounds like, you need the combination of the bass, the treble, and the mid-frequency. Otherwise, you're not getting a full picture, if you will. Um, of of what the uh, what the music or whatever it is you're listening to uh, sounds like, and the same thing with with astronomical objects. To get a full picture of what uh, celestial objects are made up or are doing or the processes involved um, with them, you need to look at the full range of light spectrum. Some of the best images that I've seen um, from astronomical surveys or astronomical objects are when they combine imagery from the Hubble, which operates in the visible, a little bit in the ultraviolet, uh, a little bit in the infrared. Combine that with Chandra, which sees X-rays, and with Spitzer, which sees in the infrared. And with that full combination of the electromagnetic spectrum, you get a really good picture of what's going on. Oh, I'll bet you do. You know, when I guess when the average person thinks of infrared, what we're used to is night vision goggles or firefighters seeing through walls. And this is very different from that, isn't it, in terms of how it will appear? In terms of what it will look like, yeah. In terms of the phenomenology, not really. Um, so akin to um, firefighters seeing through walls, looking at heat signatures um, through, um, through objects, uh, one of the objectives for JWST is to look at um, star formation and the planetary systems that are being formed around them. Well, that's happening in this big cloud of dust. Um, I don't know if you remember some of the images from um, the uh, what they call the stellar nursery region in, in, um, in Orion. Um, but you know, we know that's happening in there, but we can't see what's going on because of all the dust. Um, but if you look in the infrared, you can see through that dust. Uh, and we can see then how those planetary systems are being formed, which is you know, one of the things that astronomers are really interested in learning about. And the other really um, important thing about the infrared is you know, one of the objectives for JWST is to look at the first stars and galaxies that were formed in the universe. And they are very, very far away from us. And because the universe is expanding, they're moving away from us at higher and higher speeds. And because they're moving away, their light is redshifted uh, due to the Doppler effect, kind of like when a car moving away from you has a lower frequency than a car coming at you. Well, the same thing with light. The wavelengths get stretched because things are moving away, and that then makes them appear in the infrared to us 
Um, and so having an observatory that looks in the infrared is, is very important. Today's episode of Innovation Tech Talks is brought to you by Omron. Omron is a world leader in technology designed to solve social issues, improve lives, and build a better tomorrow. They serve a range of industries which utilize their technologies to innovate and grow factory automation, healthcare, mobility, and energy management. In the industrial automation business, Omron technology demonstrates the power of machines to unleash human potential, pursuing the ideal in automation in which people and machines are working together in harmony. Omron provides sensing, control, safety, vision, motion, and robotics technologies for the automotive, food and beverage packaging, semiconductor, electronics, life sciences, and infrastructure industries. For over 80 years, Omron has helped industrial businesses maximize potential by solving problems with creativity. Learn more, go to automation.omron.com. You know, one of the, one of the challenges that is interesting to me is that, you know, sitting at LaGrange 2, how does JWST handle the amount of heat that has to be blasted at it pretty much constantly? Yeah, so that's what that big tennis court size sunshield does for us, right? Um, so JWST will always be oriented with um, the telescope and the science instruments on the opposite side of the sun and the earth. And the, the sunshield um, is, is intended to protect the telescope from that, um, that light and that heat. The warm side of the sunshield is, uh, I think, um, 185 degrees um, Fahrenheit at uh, some of the warmest plates, places. And then on the cold side, it's minus 388 Fahrenheit. Um, so a huge temperature difference. Yeah. If somebody drew a corollary to a sunscreen put on, on, on yourself to avoid a sunburn, and this would be the equivalent of the sun protection factor of, of a million. Does having a, a temperature variance on one side or the other that is that dramatic affect the kinds of materials you're able to use and, and things along the way, I assume? Oh, absolutely. Um, a large part of the engineering challenge is that we had in designing the observatory was to um, accommodate uh, uh, those kinds of huge temperature differences. Uh, and a lot of material um, characterization had to be performed to ensure that you know, strength and stiffness and, um, and all the other mechanical properties of materials were as we need them to be uh, in the environments that they're going to, to be in. The good side is that once temperatures are achieved, um, JWST's thermal environment is extremely stable. We don't go through eclipses like other, um, you know, low Earth orbit uh, um, satellites do, like uh, Hubble and Chandra. Um, so we have a very stable thermal environment, which is really beneficial for for the very long observations JWST is intended to use. That makes sense. I bet it would be. I, I can see how that would. That would make a big difference. I know there are a number of, number of hurdles still left as far as in the process of setting, I say hurdles, but uh, in the process of ensuring everything is ready and good to go, how, uh, what's left that it needs to do to be ready and fully functional at this point? So, you know, we've gotten through most of the initial you know, activation and checkout um, of the observatory. Um, 
for all of the different systems. Um, and so a large part of what JWST needs to do to be ready to do science um, is, is behind us, which is great. But you're right, there's still a lot more to go. Um, you know, we found the 18 blobs of light, I call them, which are the, uh, <laughs> the, the indicating, you know, these, these are the 18 segments. Well, now we got to bring them all together. We got to align them to each other to within handfuls of nanometers. Um, we need to um, align the secondary mirror. And then we need to, uh, what we call phasing um, of the primary mirror segment. So take each of those 18 mirrors and make them behave as one. And that's a pretty long process. We use science data, uh, science images to help tell us what the, what the deformations or displacements or rotations of the different segments are and feed that information into some algorithms that are used on the ground to say, okay, now we need to go adjust you know, these mirrors by this much. And, and it's an incremental process as we slowly go from being, well, it's really hundreds of microns roughly um, of displacements and um, distortions down to nanometers. Uh, and so, yeah, it's an incremental process we have to go through. The other thing we have to do is the science instruments, they're still cooling off. And so they're not to their point of optimal performance yet. And once we get them down to the, their operating temperature, we need to go through the full set of calibrations so that they're then ready to use for science. And all of that will take us through about June. And, and are you still thinking by June, we'll roughly around then start getting some images? That's the expectation, yeah, is that the, uh, the early release science should be coming out around that time frame. Will there be any kind of big lag before the public season, you think? Or do you think there will be a, an eagerness to show the world what you're finding? I think a little of both. Um, you know, I, I know that uh, the astronomical community is anxious to, um, to share what they, they first find. I think, you know, they, they'll need to collect the data and analyze it. Uh, and make sure that uh, um, they understand what they're seeing before they release it. So that's just a natural part of the process. But but yeah, I, I think they're really anxious to get the information out there. What are you most excited about the possibility of seeing from this yourself? So, I mean, GWST has so much that it, it has the capability of, of exploring and, and helping us understand. You know, when I first started on JWST, uh, I, I was then and still am very interested in exoplanets, uh, finding, finding a, a planet around another um, star um, that has the uh, indications that it could support life. To me, that's, that's amazingly intriguing. And JWST does, does have that capability. I'm also very interested in the observations that will look at the first stars and galaxies of the universe to help confirm the cosmological theory about the early universe. You know, right now it's just theory, but uh, taking the observations that will confirm or have to tweak that, uh, that theory would be, a, I think, is going to be um, really cool. But to me, I think the real potential of JWST is to look at things and explore and uh, divulge information about the universe that we don't know about. You know, no one thought when, when they were coming up with Hubble, right? No one thought, hey, let's go look at the Hubble deep field. 
you know, that wasn't even thought about until later on. But when they made the decision to go open up the shutter for a very long period of time on a dark part of the sky just to see what was out there, they discovered that there are galaxies everywhere. And it's that kind of, of you know, unanticipated um, findings that I think JWST is going to really revolutionize our understanding of, of our universe. And in looking at a difference in how much farther out it is from Earth, how much more powerful it is than Hubble, uh, the different technologies going in. Uh, I'm assuming this could be night and day from what we've seen from Hubble over the years, even as impressive as those images are. Agreed. Um, and akin to, you know, how much more capable Hubble was versus, you know, prior observatories, the amazing things that Hubble has shown us expect the same um, advances and leaps forward from, from JWST. And the same was true of Chandra. You know, Chandra was uh, so much more capable than previous X-ray observatories. And uh, we've learned so much about the, uh, the high energy uh, astrophysics around us uh, from, from Chandra as a result of that. Um, so yeah, agreed, it, it's, gonna be, it's gonna be incredible. Are, are there any other ranges on the light spectrum that we have yet to form into a telescope in some way to get a different look? The, the short answer is not really. I think we've, you know, the Great Observatories program that started back in, what was it, late 80s, 90s, something like that, that bore out um, the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, the, uh, the Hubble, which operates in the uh, ultraviolet uh, optical and, and infrared, and then the Spitzer um, infrared telescope. That, that kind of captured the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum. I think where more capability comes in is um, being able to, to see with higher resolution, to be able to see deeper, i.e. further away, um, and look at fainter and fainter objects. Um, that's where the advances and capabilities for um, you know, bigger telescopes um, provide and more capable um, instruments provide. Is there a long delay in communication back and forth with JWST or are you able to operate it reasonably close to real time? It's, it's very close to real time. You know, the, uh, we're a million miles away. Um, and so it, it's handfuls of seconds to get um, data. It takes more time to get it processed on the ground than it does for it to get to the ground. <laughs> That's interesting. So I guess, do you remain on the James Webb Telescope project moving forward or do you move on to the next mission? I wasn't sure how Northrop Grumman's role is played once it's off the ground. So a little bit of both. You know, we're responsible for being, uh, for supporting the mission through the commissioning, through a uh, you know, June timeframe. And then, you know, because we've got a lot of the subject matter experts and the people who built the observatory working at Northrop Grumman, um, we'll have a, what we call a factory support team um, who will be there um, to help troubleshoot problems if there are any, to help with software updates, um, to keep uh, the mission moving as, uh, as efficiently as possible. For me personally, you know, JWST is very dear to me. I've spent, you know, almost, like you said, almost 25 years uh, on it. 
And just like with Chandra, which was launched in 1999, you know, I still stay plugged into Chandra and I expect to do the same thing with JWST. Are there any other projects in this vein that you guys are working on that can be discussed? Like, is there already a successor to the JWST in the works? So the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine uh, conducts a survey of astronomy and astrophysics to kind of define the, the goals and objectives and missions every 10 years. And they just released their report or their report for the 2020s. And I think it was October of last year. It's either October or November. Um, and they kind of map out uh, as they've done, you know, every decade uh, previously, what the science objectives are. And what they identified was really need to work on a series of great observatories akin to the great observatories I described before with gamma ray, uh, x-ray, et cetera. And they kind of said, these are, all, these are all the things that are out there. You should be working to go um, develop them all and get mission timelines put together, get the technologies development to go, um, to go make them capable and, and uh, to come to fruition. And Northrop Grumman has, we've always stayed connected with the large science missions uh, at NASA and, and we will continue to do so. For each of the decadal survey teams who were proposing missions to the decadal team, we worked with each of them to provide the science teams, you know, a perspective from industry, you know, to help define what can be done, what can be done with reasonable cost and schedule, et cetera. I helped support a couple of those myself, but Northrop Grumman was involved with, with each of them. And um, those kinds of missions um, that represent unique engineering challenges that dramatically advance you know, human understanding of the universe are the kinds of things that, that, uh, that Northrop Grumman um, engages in. Like our slogan says, we define possible. And that's, that's what these missions represent. Charlie, I thank you so much, man. It's been a really real pleasure to talk with you uh, and learn about this. And I'm absolutely excited. I'm checking the news every day, looking for whatever happens to whatever's going on. So it's been really nice to just sit down and pick your brain a little and share it with our readers. Absolutely. It's been great talking with you as well, Corey. 